0: Uh, we're uh, in the second week of a new series we're doing here. Each uh, message, we are doing a story, but each message hopefully is, uh, is self-contained as well. So if you haven't uh, been here before, um, I, I believe God speaks through whatever scripture we're reading this day. But if you weren't here with us, we, we started this look into the adventure of God in this book that we call the book of Exodus. Where God takes his people on a journey out of what holds them in bondage and slavery into the promise and purpose that he has for their lives. And that mimics the journey that he invites all of us to be on. We're all boxed in or pulled away from our purpose in one way or another. And God gives us a vision of what we call our discipleship pathway here in this encounter with his people in Exodus. It takes us from encountering him connecting with community and then living out into the purpose of our lives so we're we're looking at that uh, last week we studied uh, chapter one of exodus again it's a big book we're just doing an overview so we won't cover everything uh, in fact we've got a, a chunk to look at today so it's just going to be highlights so let me catch you up where we were last week in exodus one we saw the people of god beginning in oppression and slavery and in fact Uh, we get a sense that God isn't very visible or vocal in that period of time. And we have seasons of our life that's that way as well. But we saw how God's quiet promise and purpose worked out even when you couldn't see him. And that's what we saw in chapter 1. it ended with this really gruesome picture of the king of Egypt, the pharaoh, decreeing basically genocide for all the Hebrew boy children. And we pick up in chapter 2. I'm just going to overview the beginning of it and we'll read. I know the slide says 223. We're going to start in chapter 3. But in chapter 2, you get the beginning of a problem because a woman has a baby and he's Hebrew and he's a boy. And there's an interesting line in here we'll come back to later. I don't know if you've ever tripped over it as I have before. But it says, when his mother saw that he was a fine child, (laughs) your translation may say beautiful, she decides to save him and put him on the river bank. We'll talk more about that later. But what happens here in this moment is the archenemy's daughter, the Pharaoh's daughter, finds the baby in a basket placed in the water. And she rescues it. And he doesn't even realize he's bankrolling the family of the people that God will use to undermine him because he pays for his own mother, Moses' own mother, to take care of him as a little child. He grows up in the palace in Egypt as the adopted son of the princess of Egypt. And then the story fast forwards to the second, beginning of the second 40 years of his life, where it says one day he went out to look at his own people, the Hebrews, working their hard labor, and he notices an Egyptian, very hard word in the Hebrew, beating a Hebrew. That word beating there is also the word that will be later used in the Ten Commandments not to kill. So he's killing this guy, and then Moses steps in and kills him, and then Pharaoh threatens to kill Moses. (laughs) So we see what happens when violence becomes the answer to what's going on here, and so he flees for his life. If you think of the way southeast away from the land of promise, he goes to a place called Midian. And in that place, he comes up on a well and he notices a a bunch of women who are the daughters of a priest of Midian who are being harassed and abused by some shepherds and he runs them off, rescues them. He goes home to her house and to one of the daughters' house, gets married to her, and chapter 2, and we'll pick up there, chapter 2 ends with him having a child. He names Gershom. By the way, in the Old Testament, you want to make sure your parents are doing fun, happy things when you're born. Otherwise, you get a really terrible name. And so Gershom means alien there, because that's the way daddy feels at this point in his life. We pick up the story in Exodus 3, so if you have your Bibles on pixels or on pages, We are reading from Exodus chapter 3. This is the word of the Lord. One day after Moses had grown up... Sorry, that's in chapter 2. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And they led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire... It did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush doesn't burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Home of the the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign that it is I who have sent you. When you brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. And Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, what is his name? What shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord Again, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I remember there was a season in my life when someone challenged me to uh, not just read new books, but to read older books. That's become practice in my life. But one of the Uh, challenges was to go and read some of the great books in western history you know Shakespeare and some of these other things things that you guys have to read but they said why don't you go back and read it and and just ask this question why are these books classics and and one of them that I re-engaged was this one it was Homer's Iliad and I remember the first time I ever read this I'm like goodness man this is like I don't get it because you know, there's battles and they always kill them and it says the same thing like 10,000 times and the armor clattered down on top of them. I later learned that that was part of the memory device that the Greeks would use. It's a poetic thing. It doesn't matter. But here's the thing: I was like, okay, I'm going to read this, and I'm trying to, try to learn. Like, why is it classic? Why is it endured? Why are people reading this for thousands of years? I actually sat in on a class when somebody talked about this, and they talked about some of the themes that come out of this work that are themes that have engaged human hearts for centuries. And one of the things that you see is the the main plot twist of of the main character, uh, the man named Achilles, the great Greek hero. And it's the theme of fate and the choices that we make as human beings of the direction of our lives. And the way the Greeks thought about it, you didn't really have a whole lot of choice about fate. That's why they call it fate. But for him, he had one unique thing that most human beings didn't have in their mythology. He got a chance to see two possible futures, two possible fates that he could have. In the mythology, Achilles' father is human, but his mother, Thetis, is Uh, a goddess. And she encounters him in the same place, if you were with us last week, that we began the story of Alice in Wonderland. He's sitting on the sidelines doing nothing. In fact, if you know anything about the backdrop of the Iliad, it starts with him basically (coughs) pouting and staying out on the sidelines of the battle for 10 years. And everybody in the story knows all they would have to do to win the war is get Achilles to actually get off the side of the beach over by the boats engage the battle and they're going to win the war but he's sitting pouting on the sidelines and so his mother the goddess comes and says let me me share with you what humans don't normally have two potential fates that are your future you don't have any choice about any different ones but you do have the choice which one you will live out Fate number one is you can stay on the sidelines. In fact, you can get in your boat and you can sail home and you will live a peaceful, quiet life well into your elderly years. You'll get married. You'll have children. Your grandchildren will surround you. The only problem is you will have no purpose or enduring honor to your name. The word kleos in Greek is a very important word for the Greeks, especially the warriors. They were intended to live their lives with enduring honor and glory. She said, you can live and die in peace, but you will have no enduring purpose in your life. That's one fate you could choose. The other fate is you get off the sidelines, you engage the battle, and you will win a great victory for your people. And then they will sing The stories of your name. They will tell the stories of what uh, you accomplished in this battle. The only problem is you will die when you do it. Those are his two choices for the fate of his life. Now as the mythology goes, you know the choice he made. Because we still read and it's in poetry, still sing the songs of the Kleos. The enduring purpose and honor of his name. One of the reasons people keep reading this year after year, century after century, is because this is the dilemma of human life. Every one of us at every stage of our life continues to have the choice of whether to sit back on the sidelines or to engage into the larger adventure or purpose that will carry on after we are done. In Scripture, we're calling it here the adventure of God, the calling of God. You know, our mission statement is to find hope and live with purpose. And the purpose of God is to be disciples who make disciples, to be followers of the resurrected Christ in a way that makes other people followers. We are invited into a purpose that carries on generations after us. But we can choose to live shallow stories and insignificant lives if we want to. And part of the reason we tell the Exodus story again and again and live it out, not mythology here, it is a real encounter with God and a man who was having that same struggle. In the second half of his life, in the last 40 years of his life, he is struggling and wrestling with whether or not to engage into God's adventure. And the story here begins in the midst of all sorts of struggle for his people in the grand scale. We saw that last week. For 400 years, they've lived in oppression and slavery, but the the struggle gets very personal here in ways that probably all of us can understand. As it moves into chapter 2, the the struggle for Moses is a very personal one. You see, the grand purpose of God, get his people out there and to lead them into the promised land. But for Moses, like what role is he going to play, if any, in God's purpose? And the centerpiece for Moses of this text that we just read in chapter 3 is a question that he asked, and I'm convinced all of us ask at every stage of our life, whether you're 9 or 90 or anywhere in between or before, we're always wondering this question. Did you catch the question Moses asked? God called him to step into God's purpose, and what did he say? Who am I to do that? Who am I to live out your adventure? Who am I to do that? And that's his wrestle and his struggle. And listen, Moses had every reason in the world to struggle with what all of us struggle with from time to time, our identity. Who are we really? Who are we going to be in this season or stage of our life? Moses had every reason to struggle with that. Think about his birth and his faith. His birth itself, he was born in an identity struggle. Because he's born a Hebrew son which means he was destined in that community to die the king of his land had determined he was not worthy to live and yet he's rescued by an Egyptian princess and brought into her court can you imagine the struggle he had for that first 40 years of his life How do you think Moses was treated in the palace and in the community of the Egyptians? Now, they wouldn't say it to his face because he's the adopted son of a princess. But what is everybody in Egypt saying about Moses? This guy is an Egyptian. He's not royalty. He's just a Hebrew slave. And don't you think every day of the first 40 years of his life, he's feeling the tension and the struggle of that. And he wrestles with that sense of identity. But here's the interesting thing. As we move into the beginning of the second 40 years. It says very powerfully. He was trying to make a choice about his identity. It says he went out to look at where his people were. He made a choice to say. I'm going to try to identify with the Hebrew people in their slavery. And he went out there and he saw them in their hard labor. And he saw this Egyptian beating and killing a Hebrew. And he stepped in. And he Didn't do what God wanted him to do there. He violated the Ten Commandments, but he stepped in at least and did something. And what was the response of the Hebrews after when he tried to bring some harmony there and bring some leadership? They said the same question he was asking. Who are you? Who are you to judge us or to lead us? He'd not been called at that point in time. Then he goes later, he goes further down into this place of Midian, and what do they call him? They go back to the house, and they said to their father, the daughter said to their father, an Egyptian rescued us. Do you feel the tension everywhere in the story? Is he Egyptian? Is he Hebrew? He doesn't fit in anywhere. I don't know if you felt that in your life before. His birth makes him struggle for his identity, but his faith too. Can you imagine this? He's born as a Hebrew And he's raised a little bit in his mother's home. And you know she told him the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But remember, God isn't particularly vocal at this time. So he's heard these stories. But then he spent 40 years being saturated in the pagan stories of Egyptian gods. And can you feel the struggle? Do you ever feel the struggle here? You hear the stories of Scripture. You hear this. But do you really believe in resurrection when the story out there is telling you everything else? And he struggled with that. And then on top of that, now he goes to Midian, and his father-in-law is a priest of Midian. Yeah, he's in Abraham's line somewhere there, but he's not Israelite, and he's probably not worshiping Yahweh at this point. He blesses Yahweh, but we, we don't, he, he doesn't have a sense of the right religion or faith in any place of his life. He's struggling everywhere. I love the way a friend of mine described it. You can break up Moses' life maybe in three 40-year chunks. Here's a great way to think about it. Again, just part of this from a friend. This, he said it this way. He said, Moses spent the first 40 years of life, his life thinking he was a somebody. He's living in the palace. Spent the second 40 years of his life thinking he was a nobody. He's living on the other side of nowhere. And he spent the last 40 years of his life seeing what God can do through a nobody. Isn't that great? What God can do through a nobody. See, what's great about this, for him, it's true for all of us. Did you know God still calls nobodies? He still calls what I call Moses the basket case, <laughs> like literally. He calls the outsider and the outcast and the nobody and the insignificant. He calls us. By the way, can, can I share with you here something I learned from a guy named Tim Elmore. He used to be college minister, and then uh, he, he did a lot of leadership coaching, those kind of things. And he talked about different ways that God calls people And he gives some images, by the way, I've adapted some, so I don't know where his stops and mine starts, but if it's good, it came from Tim, so I want to give credit where credit's due. But think about these four different images of how God might call. It's not an exhaustive list, but it's helpful. All of us, again, at any stage of our life is always asking this question, who are you calling me to be right now? Well, God will call you in different ways. So think about one as kind of the thunderbolt experience. I would argue that most people don't have this one. If you do, you know it. So you have to discern a lot on this one. You just got to discern whether or not you're going to obey it. So Paul has a thunderbolt experience. He's going down the road. God knocks him off his horse. You're going to be an apostle of the Gentiles. Mary, good thunderbolt experience. Hey, you're just kind of tooling around as a teenager. Now you're going to be pregnant with the son of God. I mean, it's a thunderbolt moment. It's pretty clear. Second one, I also believe is relatively rare. The last two I tend to think in my experience are a little bit more common, but this one happens. I call it the birth certificate dream or calling. Some people know from very early on in their lives what they're intended to be, what their purpose is. They just have a sense of that. Most folks don't, but a lot of folks do. Uh, I get a sense of Jeremiah in this case, right? Jeremiah is someone who says, man, even as a child, I had this burning inside of me. By the way, Jeremiah didn't want to do it. He said, you called me, I didn't really want to do it. Or my favorite birth certificate dream is John the Baptist. He was literally called in utero. I don't know if you've seen this story, but he's prophesying already in the womb when Jesus comes in the room. So some people are called earlier. I think of my friend John, who was in one of our campus ministries that I worked in before. And and he used to tell me, man, when I was a little kid, as early as I could remember, I had planes. Model airplanes I built, planes on my desk, planes all over my room. He is a pilot for the United States Air Force, right? He had a birth certificate dream. He's a follower of Jesus, and he does that faithfully there. Here's what most people, I think, tend to fall into. I call it the rearview mirror kind of calling in our life. I think of Esther as a great biblical example of a rearview mirror. This is so true for so many people. I have no idea what's going on. I don't know what God is calling me to. All people do sometimes is just take one step after another. The next faithful step... God invites them into this circumstance, they do the right thing, or they mess up and they get up and then do the right thing. They follow God faithfully in whatever moment, and then all of a sudden they look back years later and say, oh, I didn't realize, God, you were doing all of that. Have you seen that before? Esther had no idea that God was going to use this little slave girl to rescue the entire Jewish race, but he did it by winning a beauty contest and her putting on a dinner as a queen. She just faithfully followed God in the moment and then she looked back and there's a whole book that tells the story of her rescue for a lot of people. If you don't know the calling of God in your life, just take the next faithful step and the next faithful step and look back and see where the direction God has taken you. That may be God's calling. But I think Moses falls into this category. I think of Joseph as well. This has been my own experience. I call it the dark room calling. Now, this is a throwback a little bit because we do all our pictures on phones now. Back in the day, they did it on this thing called film. <laughs> and it didn't pop out immediately. You, you would take the picture and then you would take it in the back room of this dark room and you would dip it in different things. And little by little, the image would appear. Think about this because it's so true for so many. Especially at a young age, you might have just a hint. Just a sense of something you're passionate about or something that God wants you to step into, but it isn't fully developed yet. And so you just keep stepping together with that previous image and see if God doesn't lead you to it. Moses had a sense from birth that he was called to be a leader and a deliverer. Do you know what the name Moses means? It means to draw out. Isn't that great? To draw out or to deliver. He was going to be the one God was going to use to draw his people out of slavery into freedom. Now, here's the thing. Sometimes you can get that sense of a dream and then it takes so long for the thing to develop. You throw it away and you give up. Think about the difference between what he was named and what he named his son. I said it was called alien there, (laughs) Gershom. Here's a literal translation. To be driven out. Do you feel the difference? God called him to be the one who draws people out. But instead, I'm the one that's an outcast and I'm driven out. Don't give up on those themes that God places in your heart. He will develop it over the course of your life. By the way, one other interesting thing in here. I said this before when we were doing the summary. What do you do with this crazy little line that says when Moses was born, his mom saw that he was a fine child and decides to rescue him? Some translations that he was beautiful. Does that mean he was an ugly baby? He was dead? (laughs) What do you do with that passage? You know what it literally translates as? See if you haven't heard this before, maybe. If you haven't, if you're new to scripture, I'll explain it. It says, When she looked at him, she looked at him and saw that he was good. Where have we heard that language before? I'm looking at my friend who teaches on these things. He looked at it and saw that it was good. Have we heard that before? God created the world, looked at it, and saw that it was good. Don't miss this. This is huge. Because what is true about Moses is true about you too. God brought him on the planet to help his purpose to restore all of creation. He's calling us back to creation's intent. Don't ever sell yourself short. Oh, I'm just here to mark time for a little while. No. Colossians chapter 1, Christ is bringing and reconciling all things to himself... And we are part of that. He is fixing what is broken in creation. That's why you are here. And he was hinted at that even as a child. She recognized he was part of God's recreation of the world. So here's the thing. I invite you to ask. Are there themes in your life? Is one of these senses of calling? Just ask God, why am I here now? What are you inviting me to do? And if you get nothing, then just take the faithful next right step and see where he leads you. Here's the power of things. We move into the story. God says, look, I know Moses isn't ready for any of this. Moses will tell you that. But God says, I want to redirect your focus. God changes his focus. He moves from Moses looking in the mirror to Moses looking at God. This will change everything for you if you recognize this. I don't know if you are like me or like Moses, but I spend my lifetime talking about all the reasons that I cannot live out a life of meaning or significance. I don't belong in any group or setting. And God says, I get all of that, but can you stop looking in the mirror and start looking at me? Focus on me and it will give you the power to live out the thing I'm calling you to do instead of focusing on what you can't do. And he does a couple of things here. The first thing is, God will say, I want you to know me. Remember the power of that word, relational and experiential. So the first thing God does, before two quick things we're going to do here at the end, the first thing he does is he says, I'm going to tell you who I am. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why is that significant to a guy that didn't really know who God was, that he was confused and all this? I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Think about this. For most Christians in the Western world, if people come up and ask him, tell me about your God, we'll start throwing out words. We'll say God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He is omniscient. He knows all things. He is, probably won't say this word, omnibenevolent. He, he is all-loving. We'll say words to describe God, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But a Jewish person never would do that. If you ask a Jewish person to tell me about your God... Here she's not going to give you a list of words. What they're going to say is, pull up a chair and let me tell you a story. Pull up a chair. Let me tell you a story if you want to know God. Think about it this way. If God says, if you want to know who I am, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What's your next question if you're Moses? Who's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Tell me that story. Listen, this is why every week we come and we listen to the word of God. It's not just to download some rules for the week. God says, "I am so intimately connected with the way I relate to my people. To know them is to know me. Get married, and you get to inherit a whole another family. To know them is to know them." But God says, "Get to know the way I interacted and related with these crazy characters." in the Genesis story and you'll learn about who I am. You get a much fuller revelation in the New Testament because this is my short form description. Who is the God you worship? He's the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and he is New Testament, the God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If you get those two stories you know God. Saturate yourself in the story of God. Why? So you can answer Bible trivia contests? No. So that you can come to know God. And here's the thing that God does in the, in the last two parts of this chapter that helps Moses move from the sidelines to the center of the story. He reveals his heart to him. He said, I don't want you to know my heart. Think about it this way. When you are going through the seasons of your life, like Israel was going through at the beginning of the story, we're tempted to ask two questions. God, where are you and what are you doing? Have you had seasons of your life that like that? God, where are you? And what in the world are you doing? This story answers that in a way that reflects his heart. Here's a way to think about it. I remember right when I moved from doing law into ministry, a brand new minister, I had no idea what I was doing. Still don't. I just trust God more now. But I had no idea what I was doing. And and I remember one of my dearest friends, his, his mother lost her husband. Now, all death is untimely and ugly, but they were, they were younger, so it was really surprising. It was an untimely death. It was a painful situation. It was the first time as an official minister, I was asked to do something official in a funeral. She said, I'd like you to pick a passage that speaks to this time. Say a couple words, but it's mostly just kind of read a passage, say a couple words. And I'm praying, God, what, what words would I read in a moment like this when she's lost the love of her life in an untimely situation? And I was drawn to these words. Can I read them again, just a couple of them here? Where is God and what is God doing in the difficult, painful moments of your life? Verse 7, the Lord said, I've indeed seen the misery of my people. Circle the verbs here. There's four of them and it'll change your life if you get it. I have seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them. Where is God in times of struggle? Where is God in times of difficulty? And what is he doing? Have you ever had these times in your life, where you're like, something's going on. You're like, God, you see this? Do you see what's going on? It says, God says what? I see. I see what you're struggling with. I see the things you're wrestling with. Have you ever cried yourself to sleep at night? Either hoping that nobody heard or wondering if anybody heard. You know what God says? I hear it. I hear the cry. I hear the challenges. I hear the things that you have to go through. I hear the things that you have to face. You know, there's a lot of people that see and hear, though, that doesn't do anything with them. God says, I see, I hear, and I care. By the way, if you were here last week, the word is no. I know it. I experience it. I relate to it. I care, and I'm going to act about it. And the last one, how powerful is this? I see, I hear, I care, so I'm coming down to do something about it. I read that at that funeral, and I thought, you know what? Those four words are the most powerful description of the gospel of Jesus Christ I've ever heard. We don't even get to the New Testament yet. Don't ever say the Old Testament is law and the New Testament is grace. This is the heart of our God and it's been grace from the beginning. I see, I hear, I care, and I'm coming down. He sees a broken world inside my heart and inside the world. He hears the cries of our heart to be different, to be better, to be more, to long for something different. He cares about it. So what did he do? He said, I'm coming down in the person of my son to put to death everything that is broken in you and outside of you. And I'm going to resurrect it all. That is the heart of our God. Lastly, God says, I'm going to reveal not just my heart. I'm going to reveal my name. The struggle for Moses in this time is personal. And so God gets really personal in the way God reveals himself to him. I know you've probably heard this before. If you've been in church before, if you haven't, you just recognize this is a really powerful description. Moses says, what's your name? All the gods had a name back then. It was often the storm god or something tied into what they did in a very specific way. And God says, I am is my name. <laughs> And there's a lot of things we can do with this. It's, there are no um, uh, vowels in the way that they wrote this in Hebrew. And so we put it together to say the word Yahweh. And so there's 10,000 things we could do with this. We don't have time to do it. Um, maybe you've heard before, it's actually the sound of breath. Yahweh. And so you are literally born saying the name of God, the personal name of God. That's beautiful. But the focus of this text is on the description of what it is. It is language of being in fact what they say is there's no tent like it covers all tenses in other words here's the only way to translate is to do it three times I was who I was I am who I am and I will be who I will be (laughs) that's God by the way isn't that great first of all he says you can't nail me down I'm a mystery I'm existence itself I'm presence itself and I cover all time I preached on this a lot before, but I, you know, the first time I was just sitting this past week and I was just uh, pouring over this and I was thinking, oh my goodness, you know what hit me for the first time? Do you realize God's name actually intersects and meets Moses' struggle? Maybe it's yours too. You know what Moses struggled with in his identity? He struggled with his past. He killed somebody. He murdered somebody. He struggled with this weird kind of mix of, of identity. He struggled with his past. He struggled with his present. He's in the middle of nowhere doing nothing. And he struggled with thoughts of his future. Just read the next couple chapters when he says, God, you've called me to do this purpose. I can't talk. I can't do this. I can't lead them. They're not going to listen to me. He struggled with his future. Have you struggled with that before? You struggle with your past? You struggle with what's going on right now? You struggle with the future? You know what God says? I am all of that. Everything that you struggle with, that you are broken with, God says, I will meet you there. I will take care of your past. I am with you in the present. And I will lead you in the future. I am all of that. It says, stop looking at the mirror and all the things you're inadequate in and start looking at the one who is everything and you will never do anything but run into his purpose. That says, I will be with you. Last thing I'll say is I, I, I love the way Louis Giglio, maybe you heard of this guy, he runs a passion, passion network, he's a minister in Atlanta, he used to be campus minister when I got to know him and he, he wrote a little book by this title and the title alone gets it but you got to follow me on this, okay? So... He said, think about the two names. Moses, essentially the name Moses was calling himself and the name of God. You know what Moses' essential name was to Moses? Moses' name was I am not. I don't know about you, but that's my name a lot of times. I am not. And I'll give you the list of things I'm not. I'm not smart enough. I'm not funny enough. I'm obviously not fast enough preaching. I'm not a lot of things, right? Actually, in this moment, I asked the Holy Spirit seriously. What would you put in the blank? Because I guarantee you, you are plagued with something that you are not. What is it? I am not. You ready for this? Just put them together with the other name and just put one little word in between. This is, this is the title of his book, but it also is, is the fuel to live your purpose in life. I am not, but I know I am. I am not, but I know the one who is, I am. So anything I can put in the blank that is good and holy and an aspiration of my life that I can't do, God says, I already am that. And I'm with you. And that's all that matters. Isn't that great? I'm not smart enough. I'm not powerful enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not holy enough. And God says, in Christ, I am. So come to me and to depend on me. For the purpose and the passion and the meaning of your life. And if we do that, here's the challenge. I challenge you in this. If whatever you would tell somebody, your purpose for life is, whatever we would tell the world, the purpose for this church is, if it's something we can do on our own strength and power, it's not God's. Doesn't mean it's bad or evil. By the way, I'm not talking about adding something, we got to go work hard. I'm talking about grace. We are saved by grace, through faith, for good works which God prepared in advance for us to do, which, by the way, you can't do without the grace and faith. (laughs) So let's dream in your life. Don't settle for shallow dreams, please. The whole world's going to feed you empty stuff to fill you up and give you significance. Don't settle for that. God says, chase a dream that only I have the power to give you. I am not... But I know I am. Church, we're not just going to mark time here until Jesus comes back and takes us to heaven. We are going to make disciples who make disciples and we're going to pour our lives into the next generation and the next generation, not by our strength or goodness, but because we know the one who is I am. The only way we do it is the words he said back to Moses. Who are we? God says, I will be with you and I am. So I end with this. I saw a picture of this years ago. I was in high school and it spilled over to my college years. A friend of mine worked in broadcast engineering and sports. He works for uh, the Washington Nationals now, but at that time he worked for the Washington Redskins, then football team, then commanders, whatever they're calling themselves now, which I'm a cowboy fan, they're our arch enemies. <laughs> but what I loved is he would get me into games sometimes. He would let me carry cords and plugs and plug things in and shuffle things back and forth from the car. And, you know, we go to games, and we're in the press area, and doing all that stuff. I got to stand next to Troy Aikman one day. Didn't talk to him because we were standing at the urnals, just so you're saying. But, <laughs> but, I got to stand there with Troy Aikman. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sweetheart. I'm gonna pay for that when I get it. <laughs> but I'll tell you, the scariest moment was I get out of the car, and I'm a high school guy, and I'm an early college guy, and I'm carrying some core. I'm just walking up. And you can picture the face of the security guard, can't you? Looking at me, and what do you think he's asking in his mind? Who are you to come in here? I can tell you all the things. I'm not qualified. I don't know how to plug things. I don't know how to do anything. I had one line that got me in the door. You know what that line was? I'm with him. Hear me. Some of you are plagued because you think you're not enough to be in the body of Christ, you're not enough to be called to Christ. I'm telling you all you have to say is I'm with him. And if there's any other basis in which you're trying to be rescued or say, Paul says there's no grace there. You can't do it. By the way, I'm not just talking about going to heaven one day. I'm talking about living a life of purpose and meaning right now. The only I can give you a list of all the reasons I have no business being a minister, no business being a Christian, no business being in the family of God. But you know what I say to anybody that says that, I'm with him. You take it up with him. People could look at us and say, what is a thousand-member church, College Station Texas, going to do to change the world? I don't know, but I'll tell you this: I'm with him, and he's renewing and restoring all things. Father God, that's our prayer. And it is our thanks. We thank you that you provided everything we need in Christ to live a life, not only to exist, but to make a difference and endure in the world. And Father, so I pray, first of all, we say thank you. Secondly, I say please call us to the next step on our journey. Whatever that step looks like, whatever age we are, Father, tell us what next step you want us to take to step more deeply into your purpose. Not in order to be accepted by you, but because we're accepted and called by you. We pray this in the glory of your name, Jesus. Amen.